Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hey, it's Jason Greenblatt from The Diplomat. Brought to you by Newsweek. Today I had the pleasure of interviewing Mark Landler from the New York Times. I worked with Mark when I was at the White House. He asked me a lot of tough questions, but we had a great relationship, and I'm really glad he joined me today. Today we discussed the pandemic parties held in Downing Street, Prince Philip, Boris Johnson, Iran, the British national who held the rabbi and several other worshippers hostage in Texas, and many other topics. I hope you enjoy the show. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. So I'm delighted this morning to speak with Mark Landler from The New York Times. Mark, I, I happen to love when I interview guests, but I take particular pleasure in interviewing journalists who I worked with while I was at the White House, because it's just great to see the shoe on the other foot. So thank you for joining me. Thank you for being willing to spend time on The Diplomat. Uh, thank you for having me, Jason. Um, you know, likewise, it's a, an interesting um, process to be on the other side of a uh, a microphone from someone who, you know, as you well know, I spent a couple of years trying to pry information out of you uh, when you were in the Trump White House. And uh, I will say, just for the record, you were one of the most expert and discreet people I talked to. Uh, in telling me only what you, what you wanted me to know. So uh, so I hope I can take a leaf out of your book, Jason, uh, and handle your questions the same way. But anyway, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. I would say you were part of my media training, so thank you for getting me to, <laughs> to have my own podcast. <laughs> let, let me start with uh, a question, which was something that you and I had discussed. And, and frankly, you were the first person to raise this with me somewhere in March or April of 2017. And when I do my talks around the world about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I actually mention your name because the phrase I'm sure you didn't create, but um, you specifically asked me about it and talked about it, which is this concept of the outside-in approach to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understood it back then, and this goes back a couple of years, the idea then was to try to get the moderate Arab countries to make peace with Israel and force the Palestinians to the table, which I found a little surprising. What didn't surprise me is the notion of making peace between Israel and the Arab neighbors, even if the Palestinians didn't want to join. But the notion of forcing the Palestinians, even early on in my stay at the White House, seemed odd. And certainly, as we saw with the Abraham Accords, it wasn't in the cards for Arab countries to be interested in doing it. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are and how that unfolded and where you were on the outside-in approach. I mean, it was a very interesting concept for me, too, because I had just come off uh, a fairly long stretch of covering the State Department and the White House under the previous administration. Um, and, and you know, their approach to uh, the Israeli-Palestinian issue was a fairly traditional one. You know, they, they tried to get the two parties to talk to one another. Um, and, you know, try to build or rebuild trust. And I think that after 
you know, six or seven years of lack of success in that regard, there was this genuine sense at the end of the Obama administration that if you were going to kickstart the process, you needed to bring some new ideas to the table. And this idea was appealing because after all, particularly on the Palestinian side, you know, one of the alibis, if you will, that the Palestinians used for not wanting to come to terms with the Israelis um, was kind of the lack of support or the lack of buy-in they were getting from uh, their big, you know, important Arab neighbors, notably Saudi Arabia. So the idea that that you could sort of remove a hurdle from the process and 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 kind of remove an obvious alibi for the Palestinians not to do a deal, um, and likewise make a deal look more attractive slash inevitable to the Israeli side, that, that was a very fresh idea in, in 2017. And, and I remember the first person who, once to, who, who sort of brought it to my attention was, was Martin Indyk, who was, um, as you know, uh, one of your predecessors in trying to broker Israeli-Palestinian peace uh, and, and had been indirectly involved in this for for a decade or even longer, uh, you know, going back to his time in the Clinton administration. So I was uh, intrigued by it. And, and, you know, as you yourself point out, the Abraham Accords were, were you know, almost a, a descendant of that thought, albeit without the final piece. You know, you, it, w- the, the Palestinians didn't end up buying into it. They were, they were not a part of it. Uh, but that didn't stop the direct negotiation between Israel uh, and some of its neighbors. So it was a it, w- it was an interesting way to think about a problem that I thought had reached a point of some intellectual exhaustion um, with the end of the Obama administration. Um, and that, you know, obviously you then dealt with a lot of the same hurdles all over again and learned how difficult this process was, probably learned why it was that your predecessors struggled as long as they did. But the germ of a different approach was was definitely there. And and for me, it made the Israeli-Palestinian and Middle East negotiations part of the Trump administration uh, an interesting foreign policy story for my first year and a half of covering the White House. Well, I'm glad I kept things interesting for you. And you then moved on to the UK. So you bring a very unique perspective, a little bit of comparing and contrasting of uh, the two governments, the two countries, the two societies. So earlier this month, you wrote a piece for the New York Times comparing and contrasting the United Kingdom and the US, uh, Trump, Biden, and Johnson regarding COVID. Walk us through your takeaways from the research that you did to write that article. It was a really fascinating article. You know, my thesis of the of the article was that um, that Boris Johnson and Joe Biden, who are inherently very different politicians with a very different outlook, you know, one a conservative, the other a Democrat, uh, you know, one the original Brexiteer politician, the other a politician uh, who opposed Brexit, um, one a politician who had very populist instincts, and in that regard, um, you know, a distinct resemblance to Donald Trump, the other uh, the politician who repudiated and, and defeated Donald Trump in the U.S., and yet these two men, these two leaders, have wound up in more or less the same place on what to do about COVID, and and that, in short, is to you know open the door to 
learning to live with this epidemic and learning to regard it less as something that needs to be eliminated by any means necessary uh, and, and more something that we need to learn to coexist with. Um, and that means fewer lockdown restrictions, uh, and that means reopening schools, uh, and that means accepting a level of risk in our daily lives that maybe in the early stages of the pandemic response uh, struck many countries uh, as unacceptable. And so, you know, what I what I try to do in the story is show how um, in the very early going of the pandemic, back when President Trump was still in office and Boris Johnson was first dealing with it, uh, these two leaders both brought some of the same instincts to the pandemic. They they uh, were very reluctant to impose uh, heavy lockdowns. They worried about the economic cost. Um, uh, you know, I think they had somewhat different views about the science. I think President Trump was always a little more skeptical about some of the science. Um, they both wholeheartedly jumped into developing vaccines. You know, uh, arguably one of the Trump administration's major achievements in the pandemic was Operation Warp Speed and the development of the vaccine. Likewise, over here, Boris Johnson did the same thing. He really championed the development of, va of vaccines. Um, uh, and so, you know, you might have said in the early going that Trump and Johnson were somewhat alike. As a result, then when Trump leaves office and Biden comes in, you know, your instinct is these two must be very different. And in the early going, I think it's fair to say they were. Um, Boris Johnson from the very start has pushed hard to lift as many restrictions as possible. Now, having said that, the UK did endure a very long lockdown. Uh, so this is not to say that that Johnson was always against restrictions in any context, but his general outlook was always to say, we're going to get past this, we're going to defeat it, there's going to be, you know, a sunny time after the end of the pandemic. And in that regard, he and, and Trump were somewhat parallel. When Biden came in to office, in particular at the beginning, he took a very different view. You know, we need to expand masking, and other lockdown regulations. We need to accept that this is going to be a long struggle. And so in the early going, I think the two of them look different. And then by the time we reached this past Christmas, I was struck that on literally the same day, uh, which was, I think, December 21st, um, Boris Johnson spoke to his public and Joe Biden spoke to the American public. And they both said the same thing. It was, go ahead and celebrate the holidays, uh, meet with your families, take the necessary precautions, but don't change the way you live your lives. And I think that it represented on the side of both leaders, but particularly on Joe Biden's side, kind of a recognition that we have to move into a new phase of confronting COVID uh, where we recognize it's gonna be endemic, it's gonna be with us for the foreseeable future. Um, we're gonna have to deal with it every year. We'll probably take booster shots every year. Um, but it's just a, it's a different way of thinking about how to how to approach COVID. And um, I thought it put the American leader and the British leader very much back on the same page, which to me struck me as an interesting coming of full circle, given where Boris Johnson and Trump both started. Let's talk about uh, Prince Philip. Prince Philip was buried recently at a socially distanced ceremony. Queen Elizabeth was grieving alone in a choir stall. You wrote about this as well. 
Prime Minister Boris Johnson gave up his place at the funeral to allow an extra royal family member to attend because of the social distance requirements and the lockdown requirements. But the night before the funeral, there were um, what were described as raucous parties at Downing Street. Prime Minister uh, Johnson was not at the parties, and he apologized to Buckingham Palace. Describe for my listeners, you know, what's going on here, and what is the British public saying about these parties? Well, this is the consuming political issue uh, in Britain today, um, and it's one that really threatens uh, Boris Johnson's survival in office. So basically, over the past several weeks, there have been a series of disclosures twice, three times a week by various British newspapers of social gatherings uh, or parties or get-togethers or wine and cheese receptions, call them what you will, but a series of gatherings um, in and around Downing Street, which, you know, isn't just the residence of the British Prime Minister. It's also, you know, as with the White House, it's where they work and it's an office building in addition to being a home. And, uh, and so uh, with each of these disclosures, um, there are obvious and very troubling questions that get raised. You know, one, uh, did they violate the lockdown re- restrictions of the day? In some cases, it's clear they did. Uh, many of these parties were held at a time when uh, Brits were told not to associate with anyone outside their household, or at most, if you were going to meet someone, you could meet a single person from outside your household bubble. You had to do it outside. You had to stay more than two meters apart. Um, clearly, these rules were not being honored by the Downing Street staff itself. So, you know, you had a series of these announcements, which peaked with the news that there was a a large party, 30 or more people held in the backyard, in the back garden at Downing Street, uh, that Boris Johnson himself attended. Uh, And it was back in May of 2020, which was during the, you know, strictest period of the lockdown in the United Kingdom. And so uh, what the prime minister has said about it is, Uh, He didn't realize what he was walking into. He didn't realize it was a party. He viewed it as a work event. Um, And that, you know, on reflection, when he was standing out there surrounded by all these people, he realized uh, this shouldn't be happening. He should have sent everyone inside. He should have called the party off, but he didn't. So, um, you know, the problem he faces is he was asked about these parties repeatedly in parliament. And he made several statements over time to the effect that um, I was told that nothing we were doing was breaking the law, was in breach of lockdown restrictions. Um, And so in effect, I'm blameless in all this. Um, As each of these parties comes to light and new details come to light, it's getting more and more difficult for the prime minister to stick to his story that he was unaware and that he knew that none of these parties were problematic. Um, So where we are is there's an internal investigation underway by a senior civil servant. Um, She has been tasked with interviewing all the relevant officials from the prime minister on down. She will submit a a report to the prime minister, which he has promised to make public. Um, If this report were to find that the prime minister misled parliament, his future would pretty much be sealed. Um, under the what they call the ministerial code in the UK, if you mislead the House of Commons as prime minister, you have to resign. Um, there is a strong feeling that she's likely to stop short of something that black and white. 
So the question is, how much criticism or how much damage can the prime minister sustain short of being forced out of office that would nevertheless lead to him being challenged internally? Um, and the reason this is really interesting is the conservative party has a long tradition of being willing to force out a leader um, if they think he or she are damaged goods. If you'll recall, Theresa May was basically forced out as prime minister when it was clear she'd lost the support of the party with her Brexit strategy. Um, and in fact, that's how Boris Johnson became prime minister. So this is a party that will not hesitate to turn on the leader if they think the leader is damaged goods. So I think that where we're at at the moment is Boris Johnson is kind of on tenterhooks. He's waiting to see what this report's going to say. He's promised to release it. Uh, I think he's hoping that the report stops short of saying he was dishonest. Uh, and then he will claim, look, mistakes were made, poor judgment was shown. He may have to sack a few of his top advisors, and he will hope to muddle through. Um, the danger for him is he may get through this immediate issue of the report being released, but still find himself so damaged in the in the um, in the conservative party that the party's rank and file simply says uh, we're going to put someone else up. And the mechanics of challenging a conservative party leader are actually not all that complicated. Um, if if fifty three members of parliament submit secret letters to to the head of a certain conservative party committee, that's enough to call a formal challenge to the party leader. And if a, a candidate emerges who's a plausible replacement, Boris Johnson could find himself voted out of office. So we're, we're in a, a moment of high drama here in Britain. And um, uh, you know it's very hard to predict how it's gonna play out. Uh, Boris Johnson is an incredibly resilient politician. He's shown in the past that he sort of has nine lives. Uh, and so I think a lot of people think he'll find a way to get out of this scrape too. But this is probably the most difficult situation he's found himself in in his political career. And there is a at least 50-50 chance that uh, he doesn't survive this and Britain uh, will have a new leader, perhaps as early as uh, in the next few weeks. Let's talk about the alcohol portion of this as well, because I see the alcohol covered in the press a great deal. You know, it's no secret the press attacked the Trump administration relentlessly. They probably attacked lots of administrations, right? But in all the attacks, I don't think I ever saw anything uh, about alcohol factoring into raucous parties at the White House. I don't think I saw it under the Obama administration, though, truthfully, I didn't follow politics back then, if you can believe it or not. I don't see it in the Biden administration. Is this a sort of cultural difference between the United States and the UK? Is it an aberration in the UK? What's happening and how important is this alcohol portion of the story? I think it is significant. Um, and I think it's going to figure prominently in the results of this internal investigation. I think there's a lot of expectation that um, the report will address the sort of drinking culture, if you will, uh, in government and in Downing Street. Um, I think that it's not necessarily that that Brits drink, you know, in the main a lot more than Americans do. I think alcohol is a, a fairly prominent feature in American uh, social life as well as it is in Britain. But I think it's also fair to say that uh, in certainly in government, it 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 seems that 
there was much more of a blending of uh, kind of work time with after work time and less of a boundary between, okay, I'm at work now, I'm gonna go home and have a drink with my family after work. I think this was a case where um, there were a lot of officials, uh, some of them younger, some somewhat older. Um, you know, some people are attributing it a little bit to the unique circumstances of the pandemic. You know, remember the rest of the country was under a work from home order. So offices everywhere around London were closed and people were working from home with the fairly, fairly small exception of uh, Whitehall, which is the, the building around Downing Street where the government officials work, where everyone was still coming into work. And so there's this kind of um, point that a few people have made is that there was a bit of a bunker mentality. You know, these people were working 18 hour days. They were dealing with this historic pandemic um, at a time when the rest of the country was largely isolated. And this contributed to a sense of, you know, on a Friday night, rather than just going home at six o'clock, maybe we'll go out into the back garden and share a glass of wine. But, you know, there have been these damaging pictures that have shown up in the tabloids of mini fridges that have been installed in offices so you can keep the wine chilled. Uh, there was a report in the Daily Telegraph uh, last week that before one of these staff parties, a junior staff member was sent out to a local store with an empty suitcase and told to fill it up with bottles of wine to bring it back for the party. So I think there's no question that um, a drinking culture exists uh, at the very senior levels of uh, government in England. And I think this is going to come under a good bit of scrutiny. Uh, you know, no one is suggesting that uh, Prime Minister Johnson, for example, uh, drinks too much. There's never been a suggestion of that. Um, uh, you know, there's never been a suggestion that decisions have been made under the influence of alcohol. It's it's not so much that. I think it's more that, particularly during this high pressure period of the pandemic, there was a kind of a blurring of the line between work and socializing. And as a result, people were beginning to perhaps behave in ways and tolerate things that in normal times might have seemed less tolerable. Uh, and so that's all going to come under fairly harsh scrutiny when the, when this report is released. Last week, uh, Queen Elizabeth stripped her second son, Prince Andrew, of his military titles and royal charities after a judge in New York ruled that a sex abuse case can proceed against him. What are the allegations? What's Prince Andrew saying? And um, how significant a step is this for Buckingham Palace to do this? Has it been done before with a royal a royal family member? Okay, well, yeah, very good questions. And to take them in order... Um, the allegation against Prince Andrew um, is made by a, a woman named uh, Virginia Jeffrey. And Virginia Jeffrey um, is uh, one of the women who um, was, uh, you know, allegedly trafficked by Prince, uh, by Jeffrey Epstein, the, the, the late financier and billionaire and convicted sex predator, um, uh, was, uh, can, was trafficked to his friends by Jeffrey Epstein for the purposes of being a sex partner. Um, and her allegation is that on uh, multiple occasions, this is stuff that dates back, uh, I think nearly two decades now, but that she was um, in, in, in essence offered up to Prince Andrew as, as a sex partner by not only uh, Jeffrey Epstein, but 
by his uh, former girlfriend, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, who, of course, as your, as your listeners will know, um, was recently herself convicted of five of six counts of sex trafficking uh, in a New York court. So what, what Virginia Giuffray has done is brought a civil suit. This is not a criminal suit or a criminal indictment of Prince Andrew. It's a civil lawsuit that accuses him of sexual abuse. Uh, now, what Prince Andrew has said from the start is uh, he categorically rejects the allegations. Um, he has no recollection of ever having met Virginia Giuffray um, and so does not understand where this all comes from. Um, he has been over the past, say, six or eight months with his lawyers in the United States, in effect, trying to quash the lawsuit. Um, uh, he's made several arguments. Uh, one of his initial arguments was uh, as a resident of the United Kingdom, he wasn't in a position to receive legal papers. Uh, they finally got him the legal papers. He's argued that um, there are jurisdictional issues, that uh, this court doesn't have the right jurisdiction to bring these charges. And, and most recently, he argued uh, that there, he was covered under the terms of a settlement agreement that Virginia Giuffray uh, negotiated with Jeffrey Epstein. In 2009, uh, she and Epstein negotiated a, um, a settlement agreement uh, under which he paid her $500,000, uh, and she agreed not to bring uh, any further litigation against him or other um, prospective defendants. Um, Prince Andrew's lawyers argued that he fell under the category of these other defendants. Um, Jeffrey's uh, lawyers argue that he didn't, uh, that these charges were different than the ones that were settled in the 2009 agreement. And as a result, the trial should be allowed to go forward. Um, the federal judge in this case is a judge, uh, Lewis Kaplan. Uh, he uh, basically ruled against the prince and said that um, there were at least two interpretations of what this settlement agreement could mean. And as a result, it did not, you know, unequivocally cover the prince. Hence, the process can go forward. Um, this is very problematic for Andrew because uh, this now empowers her attorneys to depose not only him, but potentially other members of the royal family uh, and other people that he knew. Uh, and it, it means that potentially more, uh, you know, tawdry details could come out about his behavior and allegations against him. Um, so this has been a shadow that's hung over the royal family for quite some time. I think what happened is that once the judge allowed the trial to go forward, that represented a kind of a breaking point for the royal family. And they recognized that they had to take some fairly uh, tough action against the prince to distance themselves from him. So the queen uh, stripped him of all his honorary military titles. Um, you know, several of these are titles he inherited from his father, Prince Philip, after, uh, after the prince's death. Um, and it's a stinging blow for Andrew because Andrew's, uh, to, to some extent, his claim to fame, if you will, is that he was a, a helicopter pilot during the Falkland Wars and, and actually had a, you know, a, a quite um, reputable military career. So these honorary titles uh, are core to his identity and they mean a lot to him. He's now lost those. He's also um, given up the right to use the, the honorific His Royal Highness. Uh, and, and the palace in a statement issued last week said he would be defending himself in this civil trial as a private citizen. So it's, it's very bad news for him. 
it really truly sends him into a, a, a permanent state of exile. Um, and uh, whether it insulates the queen from what may come next in this legal process, we'll have to see, but that's clearly the intent. This is the royal family's way of saying, in effect, um, we're going to erase him from the picture so that if he wants to defend himself against these charges, fine, but he's not doing it with the prestige of the crown behind him. So this past Saturday on Shabbat, a 44-year-old British citizen, Malik Faisal Akram, went into a synagogue in Texas during the services, held the rabbi and other worshippers hostage, demanded demanded the release of imprisoned Pakistani neuroscientist who was serving an 86-year-old uh, sorry an 86-year prison sentence after she was convicted in 2010 of trying to kill US army officers in Afghanistan. Some reporting has come out that two teenagers from Manchester have been detained in connection with this. What's being said in the UK about this horrible incident and is there a worrying rise of anti-Semitism in the UK now? Well, first on the case itself, um, a lot of questions still to be answered. Um, we, my colleagues uh, in, the, in London, actually traveled up to Blackburn in Lancashire, which is where uh, this uh, man was from, and interviewed his brother. Uh, and his brother made a number of interesting uh, assertions, which you know have yet to be fully vetted with the authorities. One of them is that uh, the police knew who this guy was, uh, knew that he had a troubled history, that he'd been under surveillance. Um, and so, you know, that raises a question of, uh, you know, why did he travel get to travel as freely as he did to the United States? Should the authorities have done more to detain him, question him? Um, and so and 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 so far, the authorities have said next to nothing. So I think we we need to wait a little longer to learn more about what this guy's record was here in the UK. Had he been involved in extremism, shown indications of extremism? Had he shown indications of anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic behavior? His brother says no. His brother says never heard him say anything anti-Semitic. But I think, you know, we'd want to hear much more about what this guy's background and, and record is. Um, to your broader question, I, I think the anti-Semitism has been on the radar screen in this country. Um, you know, Less perhaps in the context of extremist uh, Muslims, oddly enough, than in the context of um, labor politics. Um, so uh, you may remember that over the past, say, three or four years, there has been a, a rather huge debate within the ranks of the Labor Party about whether uh, the Labor Party leadership was tolerating uh, anti-Semitic rhetoric to creep into political discourse, whether talking about, um, you know, things that the Israeli government was doing, uh, most mostly in that context, actually, often in the context of the Israeli-Palestinian issue. Um, and uh, the previous Labor Party leader, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, was, in the minds of some, a big part of the problem, that he simply tolerated and, and even in the views of some, abetted some of this uh, fairly transparently anti-Semitic rhetoric. Um, the party's new leader, who's a, a, a guy named Keir Starmer, um, has made a, a fairly strong effort to root this out. Uh, Corbyn's been kicked out of the party uh, and, uh, and, and sent out of parliament, uh, in part because of his lack of repentance on this issue. 
Um, and the people around him are kind of in a bit of a self-exile in the party at the moment. And Corbyn, uh, you know, uh, had railed against his successor and said he's the victim of a, a you know, a sort of persecution. Um, but Starmer's goal is to try to draw a line under this and say, look, Labour may have had a problem with this. Uh, we acknowledge that certain members of the party certainly did, but we've drawn a line under it. Um, and it's it's not an issue anymore. I think some people are somewhat skeptical. They want to see more proof that, in fact, this type of rhetoric has um, truly been banished. Uh, you know, it's it's as in the United States. I think there are moments where people uh, in the Jewish community here do worry about whether certain kinds of language, certain kinds of charges, uh, certain insinuations. Um, are simply more acceptable now than they might have been five or 10 years ago. Uh, and then, of course, you've got the added issue of, uh, you know, an, an immigrant immigrant community. Uh, and so when something like this happens, uh, it will no doubt add to sort of fears that that the Jews have something to worry about here uh, that they may not have uh, five, 10 years ago. Let's, uh, for the final question, although I could go on with you for hours. <laughs> I don't think I'm even <laughs> scratching the surface on my pages of questions. Where is the UK on the Iran deal today? Meaning, do they continue to side with the European Union and want to just get something done? Do they differ from the European Union? Are they closer to American being frustrated that no realistic deal can be done with Iran? What do you think is happening? You know, it's a good, it's a good question, and I wish I had a more interesting answer for you because I I I feel like um, the government has been so distracted and preoccupied by other issues that it has not staked out as visible a role on the Iran negotiation as predecessor governments have. Um, I, I mean, historically, um, the UK has tended to be closest to the American position. Uh, in other words. At times when the Americans have been frustrated with the Iranians, they could usually count on Britain to share their frustration, more so than the Germans or the French. And often the way that these things have played out is that the Germans have tended to be somewhere in the middle. The French have usually taken a position that's the most opposed to whatever the position the, the, the U.S. happen to have. Um, I So I, I don't have a strong feeling for, we, we ask the government all the time and they offer a fairly anodyne response that says, you know, uh, we wanna do a deal, but we wanna do the right kind of deal. Um, I don't sense that Boris Johnson has thrown really much muscle or prestige behind getting this done. Uh, and in fact, I remember very vividly how he as foreign secretary came to Washington uh, to try to talk Mike Pompeo out of, or rather, I should say, to try to persuade Mike Pompeo to talk Donald Trump out of pulling out of the deal. Uh, and at the time, he, he he met with a bunch of us in Washington, uh, Boris Johnson, and was very anguished about it and said that, you know, it looks like this is a lost cause and the Trump administration is going to do what it's going to do. Uh, and he seemed genuinely crestfallen by the outcome. I have yet to hear him express any of those emotions as prime minister. Uh, and, you know, and it makes me suspect that the deal doesn't occupy the kind of bandwidth it once did in this country. Um, and I think there is a, a level of cynicism perhaps has crept into the process after this many years about how realistic this really is. 
Um, so I guess my sense would be to tell you honestly, I don't know what they're thinking in their heart of hearts, but there's very little indication publicly that they've got their backs into this process the way they have had in the past at times. Mark Landler, thank you so much for joining me on The Diplomat. This was a great conversation. Jason, thank you for having me. It's really great catching up with you again. Thank you. Hi, it's Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Really appreciate that Mark Landler from The New York Times joined me for today's show. We covered a lot of ground, including the hostage situation in Texas at a synagogue, Prince Philip and what's going on with him and the stripping of his royal titles, Boris Johnson and his situation in politics in the UK, the pandemic parties at Downing Street, Iran, many other topics. I hope you found it interesting and informative. And if you did, please do share it and my other podcast with your friends, your family, and your colleagues. We had a lot of episodes going on in 2021. If you missed any of them, do scroll back and listen. So many good ones. We have great guests coming up. You can listen to The Diplomat on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you can hear your podcasts. Do follow me on Twitter at GreenblattJD. And don't forget to pick up or pre-order, I should say, my book on Amazon, in the Path of Abraham, if you're fascinated by the Middle East, by the Abraham Accords, by Israel, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and more. If you're fascinated by the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Trump administration, do pre-order it. Go to Amazon, put in my name, Jason Greenblatt, or In the Path of Abraham. You'll find it there. Until next time, I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Newsweek.